This is Cambridge Judge Business School's online knowledge centre with expert commentary, analysis and insights into the issues of the day. Praxeology, Lessons from a Lost Science was the title of Rory Sutherland's lecture. That lost science, he said, was very simply an early attempt to formulate a science that today would be called behavioural economics, understanding how human beings think, decide and act. He told his audience that over the last 15 years, there's been a hundredfold increase in the tools available to nudge or incentivize human behaviours. The understanding of people, though, lags a long way behind and frequently results in an internal business philosophy which is culturally and emotionally at odds with how customers and employees really think, act and feel. Praxeology? That's an interesting title. I partly use it just to get attention. Um, I'm... In- absolutely avid enthusiast for behavioural economics and think it can actually um, engineer, in some cases, really significant improvements in the workings of anything from business to uh, government programmes to government policy. Um, It is, in a sense, a necessary but ridiculous name, because all economics should really be behavioural economics. I think that's a a Charlie Munger point. You know, if economics isn't behavioural, I don't know what the hell is. But the very fact that you need a phrase, behavioural economics or praxeology for that matter, I think indicates something that's seriously wrong with economics. So what are the takeaways from your, your lecture? Well, one takeaway would be that it's utterly peculiar that we have a phrase behavioural economics because nobody refers to Isaac Newton as being a behavioural physicist. Now, you know, a good physicist, for example, would observe the behaviour of matter and then formulate theories based on those observations. What it seems to me is that economics uh, does the whole thing backwards. It develops theories, forces wherever possible uh, human behaviour to uh, uh, fit with those theories, regardless of, you know, any... uh, any reality to the contrary and actually then um, when human behavior doesn't fulfill the theory it then actually attacks the human beings by calling them irrational now that seems to be a profoundly dishonest thing to do I don't think it would matter that much that this went on were it not for the fact that um, the neoclassical sort of microeconomic model has an extraordinary influence often a kind of beneath-the-radar unconscious influence on business decision-making. And I think an awful lot of business decisions are taken because when the decision is in line with neoclassical microeconomic assumptions, it's assumed to be therefore axiomatically right. Um, A very, very simple example might be dropping the price of something. The assumption of neoclassical economics is that if you drop the price of something, more people will buy it. Um, That's probably true, by the way, in the real world more often than it isn't. But quite often it isn't. And the way the human mind works and the way the human mind constructs ideas of value and the way the human mind constructs preference is actually much more complex and much more sophisticated uh, than that very simple model suggests. It's actually much more intelligent in some ways. Um, it may be less rational, but it may actually be more intelligent than that model suggests. And once you understand a little bit of evolutionary psychology, it's a lot more intelligent in many cases. Well, you say that suddenly in the last 15 years, the tools we have at our disposal to, to nudge or incentivize new human behaviours have grown a hundredfold. Yes, well, first of all, it's worth remembering that behavioural economics is obviously hugely useful in itself. But I think the development of technology, uh, in particular, for example, web or mobile interfaces, uh, multiplies its applications. 
But I think the relationship's actually a two-way relationship, a kind of symbiotic relationship, because I think also uh, the great thing about digital technology, whether it be anything as you know, simple as search, for example, um, or... Um, uh, you know, the ease of experimentation in the way you present choice architectures on a screen, much more expensive to do in print, um, that can actually also teach us a great deal. Because the one really important thing about uh, data that's usually harvested from digital technology is it is at least behavioural data. The person has actually done something. They have clicked or bought or searched. And I would make you know, a very rough generalisation that um, one of the other great things that I think often um, wrongfoots business decision-making is when it doesn't rely on microeconomic assumptions, or, you know, the, the assumptions of microeconomic theory, which are not real-world assumptions at all. It also relies too heavily on uh, f what you might call first-order market research, simply asking people to predict and explain their behaviour. Now, behavioural data showing people what, showing what people actually do is in some cases, you know, many times more reliable and more predictive uh, than uh, what you might call reported behaviour. And, we, and what, what we're learning about psychology increasingly suggests that there are large parts of the human brain which are, to use a wonderful phrase, opaque to introspection. We genuinely don't know why we do many of the things we do. Those parts of our brain don't connect to our speech or uh, rational brain at all they merely exert an influence but are you arguing or are you going down the path that those opaque parts of the brain are now being discovered they're now being explored uh, well the first thing is not i mean yes i think i mean it's very interesting that daniel kahneman makes the observation he said that if i were 15 or 20 years younger i would have become a neuroscientist that may be to be honest a little bit optimistic as a time scale. Um, and yes, I think it's true that neuroscience will actually start to, uh, at the very least, uncover some sense behind these workings. But the most important thing of all is not actually to understand them, it's to acknowledge they exist in the first place. You told your audience that long overdue scientific revival, whereby better human understanding can be the best route to real competitive advantage and better outcomes for business, consumers and the planet. Yes, I think that's true. I think that in, for example, the quest to make, uh, it, you know, consumers adopt more environmentally friendly behaviours, there's a very strong, uh, you know, illusion that actually attitude always, you know, is effectively the father of the act. And therefore, in order to get people behaving in an environmentally friendly way, you first have to convert them into, uh, you know, evangelical tree huggers. Only then can we have any hope. And I would argue quite a lot of wasted effort is, um, uh, is actually exerted in this what you might call failed attempt at religious conversion. There are many cases, in fact, where you can simply change the environment in such a way that people actually behave in more sustainable ways. Um, uh, and then two things may happen. They may actually become more uh, enthusiastic towards uh, environmentalism as a result of their actions. Arguably, I've become more favourable towards recycling since my local council made it very easy for me to recycle, for example. Um, or in other cases, you might say, and this gets, of course, you know, this gives a lot of people the heebie-jeebies, and I accept that, and I'm, you know, alert to this, um, uh, that um, it doesn't really matter what their motivation is so long as they adopt the behaviour. 
and that you know it's uh, it's a ludicrous world to hypothesize in which we actually employ rational cogitation behind every decision we make regardless how trivial you know many of our decisions have to be instinctive otherwise we couldn't function as a species a final point and and that is you mentioned the, the last 15 years well taking back 15 years we we were in the last knockings of the 20th century there've been many changes since then particularly in organizational structures which are which are flatter less bureaucratic uh, and that's got to have had an impact on on decision making and 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 dealing with people yes i i think it's true to say that, that, that those will have effects on the other hand i think there's a bigger question to look at here in terms of how you structure organizations i i spend quite a lot of time when i'm not talking to behavioral economists i talk to evolutionary biologists and they would say there are certain aspects of human structure uh, which actually are effectively uh, embedded in biology that the extent to which you can really uh reshape organizations um is uh you know open to question so to take a very interesting example and this would be someone uh, actually someone who deserves to be much more famous than they are someone like Eleanor Ostrom okay would say actually there is an absolute sort of economic imperative that you increase efficiency when you centralize you know you create larger entities And that is probably sometimes true. For example, in a city the size of Boston, it's a good idea to centralize something like your forensic science d- division of the police force rather than scattering it around different precincts. However, she would say that the nature of human psychology is such that actually in some cases you will actually uh, create efficiency at the price of genuine effectiveness. That actually there is something to be said for the distributed group of precincts where everybody knows each other. within the precinct the kind of dunbar number idea but also they're absolutely familiar with the local terrain and so there is a really important point if you're interested in organizations you have to be a little bit of an evolutionary biologist rather than just an economist increasingly the most interesting work in economics is if you like a kind of synthesis between economics and um well darwinism evolutionary biology in some shape and if i would give anybody listening to this one bit of advice and this is particularly i think pertinent to a um uh, you know a business school audience it's think like a biologist and i think that conventional sort of economic theory which has dominated in boardrooms to a great extent bear in mind that it's extraordinarily narrow in its preoccupations it's blind to ethics it's blind to psychology it's blind to um path dependence it's blind to marketing of course it postulates a world of perfect trust and perfect information in which of course marketing need not exist and so you have this very very narrow almost aspergic science which dominates business thinking if you also alongside that take on some of the thinking that's um found in the most interesting aspects of uh, evolutionary biology evolutionary psychology behavioral science but it will at least give you binocular vision you will at least have a different way of looking at problems which in many cases is the most liberating approach if you're stuck rory sutherland thank you very much this program was produced by cambridge judge business school as part of its online broadcast series